Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to show what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create at least a virtual dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. My co-host, Liz Graves, is off this week, so I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that we are recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Maine has had a long history of purposeful land conservation, including gifts of land formed that formed Acadia National Park, along with Governor Personal Basker's masterful creation of Baxter State Park. And more recently, local land trusts have taken up the cause, conserving land for public benefit in every corner of the state. One of those land trusts is Frenchman's Bay Conservancy, and they're working in a region that includes the Union River watershed. And one of its most recent projects has resulted in forever wild protection of 3,200 acres of the whale's back along Route 9 in Aurora. And I'm so happy to have some guests in the studio who can help us um, understand the background on this wonderful project to get get us started. So Aaron Doherty is with us. Um, He's the executive director of Frenchman Bay Conservancy. Welcome to you, Aaron. Welcome back because you've been on this show before. Good good morning. Good to see you again. Along with Aaron Malcolm Hunter or Mac Hunter, he is one of the two donors for um, a forever wild conservation easement in Aurora. And Mac and I go back because both of us started, I think, in 1967 as wildlife students at the University of Maine. So glad to have you with us, Mac. Glad to be here. And then Sophie Earhart is a coordinator of the Wildlands Partnership Project, and we'll learn more about that and the role that they've played in making this uh, conservation easement happen and kind of um, bringing it forward to think about climate change. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Sophie, why don't we start with you? Give us a little bit of background. And how did you um, come into this work and, and uh, what are you doing now? Sure. Well, I uh, work for the Northeast Wilderness Trust, which is a regional land trust in New England and in northern New York. We're a niche land trust. We focus on wilderness conservation. Every property that we work uh, to conserve, we like to say, will be a future old growth forest. And so we're really focused on those values of biodiversity and resilience to climate change and connectivity for wildlife I, as the Wildlands Partnership Coordinator, uh, came to this project actually through Frenchman Bay Community Forest. We had worked with them on another Wildlands project. Through our program, we wind up holding forever wild easements on properties. Uh, Told me about an exciting project that he was working on uh, with Mac Hunter to conserve the Walesback property. And uh, we took it from there. And you you grew up in this region, or at least partly in this region? Yeah, I grew up actually mostly on Cape Cod and then moved uh, to Maine uh, during my high school years and went to high school on Mount Desert Island. My mother went to College of the Atlantic, went back to school uh, when we were older and went to school there. And I actually met my husband uh, on Mount Desert Island. So, yeah, I have uh, roots to Maine, but right now I live in Vermont. I live in Montpelier, Vermont. Um, Mac, uh, please introduce yourself. Give us a little more background on yourself and what um, um, excites you about this particular project. 
Oh, that's a, that, that's a tall order to do briefly, but uh, I grew up in Damariscotta, Maine, uh, have been tied to the University of Maine for quite a few decades, as you as you alluded to, um, uh, first as a student and then ultimately as a, as a faculty member uh, for approaching 40 years. We've, my wife and I, um, Aram Calhoun, also a professor uh, at the University of Maine in the Department of Wildlife Fisheries and Conservation Biology, We've been living in the upper Hancock County, the near the Union River, for uh, about 13 years now. Living here led to us being very much involved in local land conservation. We soon had an alliance happening with Frenchman Bacon Conservancy, and the the latest version of that is this Whalesback project that we'll be talking about. Great. Thank you. Um, Aaron, um, a little bit of background for our listeners, if you could. Uh, yeah, thank you, Ron. Um, so I'm the executive director of Frenchman Bay Conservancy. I've been with this organization for about eight years, and our mission is to conserve distinctive ecosystems, lands, and waters for the benefit of all in the Union River and Frenchman Bay watersheds east to the Hancock County line. And I would add one one more piece about Mac. When I started, uh, I got a phone call and Mac introduced himself and, and said, if you haven't been out to the Mariahville Falls Preserve of Frenchman Bay Conservancy, let me let me uh, give you a tour. And so he kindly reached out and uh, brought me for a, a walk in the woods. And we got to uh, talking about the Union River. And that was several years before this project. You know, I think that there's some great minds in this organization and uh, great partners as well. So you've you've got a few on this call today. We're glad to be here. Aaron, why don't you get us started and just remind us, and Matt can fill in, um, what are some of the, uh, the, what's the history of land conservation in Maine? Um, things that listeners should be aware of that we're not starting from scratch here. We've got a long history of thinking about these issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say about the history of land conservation in Maine is just the partnership, the diversity. Maine is one of the states where we've got a rich history and I would say a rich current culture of land conservation and private organizations, land trusts. There are, I think, 80 or so staffed uh, land trusts in the state and uh, working in all corners of Maine, some very small organizations, and then I think one of the largest is uh, Forest Society of Maine that covers Maine's North Woods. We've got statewide organizations. We've got town by town organizations. But ours is one that works within the Union River watershed, the Frenchman Bay region, and then the Scudic area. So um, sort of three distinct geographic areas, but all close together in Hancock County. And then you've got state partners uh, that you mentioned, Percival Baxter, and I, I don't know <clears throat> all of the history in terms of state conservation, but the, the reality is that today we've got a mosaic of conserved lands throughout the state. And if you if you drill down onto individual parcels, you'd see, well, this one's protected by Frenchman Bay Conservancy and maybe this one by Maine Coast Heritage Trust and then the state and, and Acadia National Park. Um, so I think it's it's a pretty exciting story. Mac, what would you add to the kind of history of conservation? As you alluded in your introduction, it, it goes back a little over a century uh, to the establishment of Acadia National Park and, and Baxter State Park were two really monumental things, not just on a, from the perspective of the state of Maine, but they, they were nationally precedent setting in, in various ways as well. 
Fast forwarding to the latter decades of, of the last century, the 1980s and 1990s, there uh, was something afoot in the main woods where a lot of the traditional uh, lumber companies that had big mills and vast land holdings started to separate their land holdings from the mills. And there was just an incredible period of land turning over to owner ownership. And, and some of that could have gone rather badly in terms of subdividing land into lots and lots of 40-acre parcels that weren't accessible to the public and fragmented from a wildlife conservation per perspective. In reaction to that, um, a number of things happened. The land trust movement got going in a, in a big way, and, and that, that's a national movement, but um, much of its origin can be traced back to the state of Maine as, as well. Maine Coast Heritage Trust was uh, an incredible impetus to to a national movement in that respect. Also at about that that time, state funding in the form of the uh, Land for Maine's Future came uh, came to the came to the fore and uh, provided seed money for the, the land trust movement to to get out and start con, con, conserving land. So now we have uh, well Aaron said it, we have an amazingly rich, diverse culture of land conservation happening with private interests like the, the, the various land trusts, state and federal agencies are all co collaborating quite nicely. What, what do we gain? All of you can participate in this uh, answer to this question. What does society gain and, and what does biodiversity gain by conserving mm -hmm. lands? We come from a history of not necessarily conserving, but actively using land for usually economic gain. I mean, that's the history of mankind is is using land in some in some fashion. What what do we gain by conserving land? Aaron, do you want to get us started? Um, I, I'm happy to say something, and I know uh, Sophie could chime in as well. I mean, we're all working. We're nonprofit organizations. The land trusts are nonprofits, and we're serving uh, the public interests as you know, public benefit work. And there's a lot of benefit. There's, I think, land conservation provides an amazing array of assets for individuals from traditional uses like hunting and fishing and um, access for harvesters, commercial harvesters to the shoreline. And in some cases, it's protecting working forest jobs. I, I talked about Forest Society of Maine and Mac talked about the, the changing you know, conversion of, of forest land in Maine. We're also protecting uh, outdoor recreation. Uh, Frenchman Bay Conservancy provides access to 35 miles of, of trails. So, you know, there's there's an incredible diversity there, but you mentioned biodiversity as well. And I would just um, point out that the UN Convention on Biodiversity just, uh, I think it just concluded. People, some of your listeners have probably heard about the 30 by 30 initiative. Well, this is, you know, a global initiative to try to protect 30% of of Earth for uh, not just for people, but for all of the rest of life on this planet. So, uh, you know, that's going global, obviously, but I think all of us have a local role in that and, um, you know, determining what are the places that are most important to protect and how can we protect them now before they get subdivided and developed. And, and you know, once that development happens, the, the landscape has changed um, often irreversibly. 
you've uh, um, both uh, you and Mac have alluded to the use of land, even though um, it's protected. Um, and that goes back to, as I recall, is to a definition of conservation. Conservation um, wasn't necessarily locking land up and letting no one use it. Um, and then we'll come to a forever wild notion. When we talk a bit, bit with Sophie, but this notion of conservation was was actively using land. Well, it was actually, uh, it was a forester named Gifford Pinchot who really uh, coined the word conservation. And by that word, he meant uh, wise use of natural resources. And and that certainly would uh, include forestry if if practiced wisely and sustainably. And and, and we all uh, seek to uh, to achieve that. We reference the Forest Society of Maine. That's a land trust that specializes in so-called working forest easements that uh, allow sustainable forestry to continue along with other benefits like uh, access for public recreation and wildlife habitat and, and, and so forth. Aldo Leopold, when you bring him into the picture, and he, uh, he was most active in the 1920s and, 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 and 30s, he was one of the clearest voices for within this bigger umbrella of conservation, there being a role for preservation uh, in the sense of there being some places that that we really set aside and 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 significantly limit human use uh, and start to exclude things like like forestry. We don't we we tend to allow um, in these wilderness areas we typically allow public access. We allow hunting and fishing, but we we tend we definitely do not allow logging uh, and other forms of commercial activity like that. We usually uh, significantly limit access by motorized vehicles and and so forth but um i think of that as preservation and it being uh an important subset within the the larger idea of conservation sophie what would you add to that and maybe um you'd be a good person to start with with thinking about um environmental services, things that um, are provided not just to people, but to, to the environment and to biodiversity itself. Um, the land does this for us. Tell us a little bit about that right. concept. Right. We found that in, in protecting uh, nature for nature's sake, there actually are a myriad benefits for humans. And I like to be a little bit careful talking about ecosystem services because it makes it sound like nature is there just to serve humans, which it is there for that, but also for all the all of our wild cousins and species. But what we've definitely found uh, with wildlands, with areas um, where we allow nature to determine the natural processes shape, shape the landscape as opposed to human activities, that the benefits for Biodiversity are tremendous um, in these old and wild forests. And when you talk about an ecosystem services, obviously we're in this crazy place right now facing, um, you know, the collapse of many species, sort of a mass extinction event um, that we're at the beginning of or in the middle of. And while uh, you can think of that in, in two ways, you can think of that what does that mean for all these other animals? But also, what does that mean for humans? We know that we can't probably survive without all of our insects, pollinators, and without, 
you know, the diversity of um, genetics in our plant species, all of these things. So protecting some places just for nature has obvious benefits for the biodiversity, but also uh, for resilience to climate change, which is another um, threat that we're facing uh, with climate change. We found that wild forests are very resilient to climate change because they have such a um, complexity in their structure and in their species. And when we can get, connect uh, vast areas uh, that are protected, we are going to allow species to move as they need to, to survive during climate change. Um, and so there's this biodiversity component, there's resilience, and there's also the carbon storage. Um, trees are amazing natural machines that suck carbon out of the air and store it in their, you know, in their own mass, but also in the ground. And we need to protect them uh, to do this job for us while we transition to uh, more sustainable energy supplies and can reduce our emissions. Um, and then finally, you know, there's this piece of wild places being places that people can go to, um, to immerse themselves in nature mm -hmm. and connect with nature. And the mental health benefits of that um, are, are finally being, you know, studied and <laughs> applauded and recognized. Um, but that uh, connection with natural places is a really important thing. And, and one thing that land trusts do is they create, uh, well, that, that they give access to the whole community, right? So if, a, if an individual private landowner owns property, um, they can keep everybody off it. When a land trust um, owns a property or holds an easement on it, they give the public access and allow them to get into nature without having to spend a lot of money to buy a ski pass or get a mountain bike or like, you know, you can just walk onto the land. Um, and that's not to be underestimated, I don't think, you know, as a benefit to people. So Great. I'll just remind listeners that are tuned to Talk of the Towns um, here at WERU. Our guests include Sophie Earhart, who is the coordinator of the Wildlands Partnership Project, and we'll learn more, a little bit more about the specifics of that in a minute. Uh, Mac Hunter is the donor of a, uh, along with his wife, uh, Cal, Aram Calhoun, partner, um, a forever wild conservation easement in Aurora. And Aaron Doherty is executive director of Frenchman's Bay Conservancy. So what led to the protection of the whales back? First of all, what is the whales back? Many of us will, will know some of that, but uh, um, uh, Aaron, can you get us started in terms of, of, of what is the whales back and why is it important to conserve? Yeah, well, the name comes from the, the shape of this glacial esker, the landform itself. And as you drive Route 9 um, heading east from Amherst into Aurora, through Aurora, you, it's got this sort of undulating shape to it. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm sure Matt could talk more about that as well. But uh, part of that, that's actually part of what makes this place important to conserve is the underlying uh, bedrock, the, the, the you know, the, the shape of this landform. And, you know, one of the things that we think about in terms of con, uh, conserving properties is climate resilience. And what are the places that are going to be the most resilient as the climate changes? And, you know, which, which areas of our, you know, forests and our, our landscape are going to provide habitat for the greatest diversity of species over time? Um, and as it turns out, the whales back 
uh, property that we can serve now is actually one of those really important places um, for a number of reasons. It's partly the 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 slope and the the direction of the slope and the contiguity with other landscapes and the diversity of species that are there now and the wetlands and all of that together uh, makes for a, a mosaic of ecosystems that are are very important for uh, local wildlife. And um, as I understand it, it's part of the Union River watershed, part of the um, the the origins of at least one branch of the Union River. So whatever yeah. happens upstream um, also happens downstream. Right. Yeah, there are a couple ponds to the north and uh, uh, lower middle branch pond is the closest one. Um, and it, it forms the, the middle branch of the Union River. Uh, so, yeah, it's a... Uh, Remarkably wild uh, section of the Union River watershed, a beautiful area. Um, I would just echo what Sophie was saying about um, wild landscapes, and there's so very few of them left in Maine. So when we have the opportunity to conserve a forest and actually set it aside as wild, allowing people to still use it, but making sure that it's going to just grow old and become a mature forest over time, um, that's just really incredibly valuable for the landscape and I think for people's experience when they get out in nature. Mac, as you and Aram um, thought about um, the future of this particular parcel of land, um, what, was, what was your impetus? What, what, uh, what led you to be um, active in this, in this way? Well, there was a, a pretty interesting uh, and long and complicated history to this project uh, and the way it un, un, unfolded. Um, I mean, it began when the the person who owned the, the land put it on the market for sale. And it's and it sat for sale for um, a couple of years. And the price seemed a bit high and the um, and the threat didn't seem all that great. So the conservation community was aware of it, but it wasn't. I didn't feel particularly urgent about acting up, um, upon it. Um, but then some things started to unfold. The, um, it became clear that the main department of transportation would be, uh, putting a bypass that went around Bangor Brewer and connected directly to, uh, Route 9, the airline, creating a, a major transportation corridor going through to, um, through to Canada, and um, the by the extension of the bypass around Brewers was going to make it a lot easier to get out Route Nine, and that was probably going to generate um, more traffic. It'd be much more feasible to commute from Aurora into Bangor and Brewer for for work. So we dissipated um, development pressure uh, unfolding because of that, and because of the. Um, the requirement of of mitigation associated with the bypass looked like there were going to be significant funds available for for conservation. So it was, it was kind of a no brainer. Hey, this this uh, bypass is going to generate more development pressure uh, east of of Bangor. Let's use some of that money to do some conservation out there. Well, in the end, it turned out that. Um, those funds were used for for another worthy project, but but in the process of of um, getting the conservation community focused on this on this property, the ex the extent of the of the all the wetlands there, the uh, the sort of the ecological resilience of the, of the landscape that Aaron was referencing, 
all that became clear. So uh, we decided to uh, pursue other forms of of uh, funding for the for the project. And uh, Aaron really took the the lead on that. And maybe I want to I'll pass the ball back to to him about how how the uh, the funding all unfolded. It, sure, it, it's really. I mean, I think it's an interesting story, but. Um, I mean, I could talk land conservation all day. Um, picking up where Mac left off, we felt, um, yeah, we, we felt like we had hit a little bit of a hurdle at that point. Um, and we reached out to the state to see if the state might be a conservation partner. Um, there was an interest, but there wasn't a lot of funding um, available at the time. And uh, we soon shifted gears and ended up working with Maine Coast Heritage Trust and submitted a a grant proposal to a uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, program that protects uh, wading bird and waterfowl habitat, and we ended up securing a one million dollar grant from from that program. That um, a large portion of it uh, was used towards conservation of the whales back, and uh, some of it was used for conservation elsewhere in Downeast Maine, actually in Washington County, uh, through Maine Coast Heritage Trust, and. Um, uh, so the $800,000 that we had available for the whales back um, was not nearly enough money to protect all of the land that we were interested in. And um, we needed also, in order to secure that funding, we needed to provide a two to one match. So for every dollar that we got of grant money, we need to provide $2 worth of value in either a cash that uh, uh, donors would give to Frenchman Bay Conservancy or in the value of land that people like Mac um, and, and other conservation buyers would contribute in order to make this whole thing happen. And the last piece that I'll add is um, jumping back in time a, a little bit. Um, I had received a, a, a letter from um, Northeast Wilderness Trust talking about this new program, the Wildlands Partnership Program. And uh, and I, I picked up the phone because I was intrigued. And that's when I spoke with, with Sophie. And, um, you know, Sophie Earhart and I talked about the Frenchman Bay Community Forest project that she mentioned earlier in this program at that time. And it was such a successful partnership. Actually, um, Northeast Wilderness Trust put together a video that's on their website and on ours in case any of the listeners want to go and, and check it out and understand more about that program. But we wanted to see if we could adapt that to um, to the whales back as well. And so Northeast Wilderness Trust ended up becoming a, a financial partner uh, providing, you know, some of the cost of putting the program together and helping to connect all of us with uh, some other funders as well. So um, over the course of the project, we had connections with Forest Society of Maine, um, uh, Northeast Wilderness Trust, New England Forestry Foundation, Maine Coast Heritage Trust. I'm probably missing others, but there were a lot of sharp minds in the room at various points to help make this happen. Mm. What, give us a, a listeners a sense of of the significance of this 3,200 acres. Um, in terms of size, is that about a third of the size of Acadia National Park, or a quarter? What? What? I mean, put it in perspective so that we're we're seeing how much land is being protected in this particular um, set of, of uh, easements. Anybody? <laughs> Well, it's a lot of land. It, it would take you a long time to walk across it. Um, I don't remember offhand how big Acadia National Park is, but um, yeah, maybe maybe while others are are talking, it's about ten percent. Put my hands on that. Ten percent, yeah. Ten, ten okay, about ten yeah. percent. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, and one of the reasons uh, Northeast Wilderness Trust thought this was such an amazing project was in addition to you know, being a biodiversity hotspot with all that wetlands was also that it's close enough to other large uh, conserved properties. Um, Amherst Mountain Community Forest is nearby. Um, and and so having um, one, one of those properties be forever wild uh, provides a core refuge for species that are moving across the landscape. And they might be moving through um, some sustainably forested areas, you know, some some actively harvested properties, but they still have kind of a core refuge area um, for breeding and for nesting and for the uh, salmon and trout to move through. So it's uh, it's um, both the size of it, but also the context where it is on right. the landscape. Yeah. And it's connection to other parcels. Correct. Um, right, right, right. I see. Right. Good, good. And um, this um, uh, conservation easement has another aspect. We talked about climate change and carbon sequestration. Um, Sophie, do you want to begin to introduce that, um, how this, this easement um, affects that, that kind of practice? Uh, the carbon storage part piece of it? Yeah. So, well, interestingly, I mean, any land protection project um, that restricts, you know, conversion um, of a forest to development or that restricts harvest is essentially a carbon project, right? Whether <laughs> Because like, like we discussed before, trees are... Um, carbon capture machines. <laughs> so living, breathing, beautiful ones, but that, that's what they do. So um, by, by purchasing and protecting this, this 3,000, how many, how many acres is it again? 30, 3,200 3, acres. Um, what's happened is all the carbon that is currently stored in both the forest and in those wetlands um, is now locked up, basically. <laughs> it's not going to be released by having the trees cut down or roads built or conversion, but also as the forest matures and grows older and more complex, it's going to sequester uh, and store more and more carbon uh, over time. and. Uh, Wild forests do this so well because they have this complexity in their structure. So they're sequestering carbon, not just at the very, you know, the top, the tallest trees, but all the way down through the shrub layer and in the mycorrhiza of the undisturbed soil. So there's tremendous carbon storage potential. And um, one of the things that we've uh, done with the Wildlands Partnership is try to uh, encourage land trust, land protection uh, through this lens a little bit of, you know, thinking about the carbon storage of our properties. As I recall from the newspaper article, this land had been cut over um, mm -hmm. within the last um, 50 years. Um, so it's beginning to grow back. If we were to visit this in 25 or 50 years, Mac, what would we be seeing um, kind of on the land in terms of, of uh, trees, uh, wetlands, wildlife? Um, how, how will this um, mature, as Sophie put it, over time? Well, the, the simple answer, of course, is the trees will get bigger, <laughs> and um, and obviously they they get taller, they get th thicker. But 
it's really interesting the extent to which it's not obvious what's really going on because so much of it's happening below ground. So much of the carbon storage is is associated with with uh, under underground storage. Um, so yeah, we all appreciate that a, a you know an actively growing tree is is taking carbon out of the atmosphere and and turning it into to wood. But it's it's much bigger than that, as as, as Sophie was uh, alluding and. Not necessarily uh, apparent to the to the uh, untrained eye. The, so, yeah. In terms of what you would see going out there, is again mostly just just bigger bigger trees. Um, to me, one of the let me digress a little bit uh, here. When we think of a forest getting mature in Maine, we think of trees getting tall, the canopy closing, and you have this, you know, continuous um, continuous canopy that gets kind of dark underneath, uh, etc. Et, et and a lot of people, when they see those kinds of forests, think, well, it there's not, not necessarily a lot going on here. The understory is kind of uh, uh, dark and uh, sometimes limiting to the understory vegetation. And the what really is happening is that that is the stage at which we tend to go out and cut the forest because it's an efficient way to to generate lumber and we and we rarely let the forest get um any older than that that sort of closed canopy stage if we if we're prepared to wait another uh 50 100 150 years things start to happen. Some of those big old trees get old and, and they fall over in a windstorm and, and die and create gaps in the canopy. And a, a really, truly old forest, one that's 150, 200, 300 years old, is a very, very complex thing um, with lots of vertical diversity and uh, a lot of things going on in the habitat for lots of species. Um, but it's relatively rare that we let forests uh, get that that old. They're they're quite uncommon in the state at this point um, because of activities in in the recent uh, well going back to um, to uh, Baxter's uh, and the Acadia National Park and and uh, and things happening in the last few few decades. We have set aside in very rough numbers, about five percent of the state of Maine has been set aside and will get old um in in times to come. But that's uh five percent's a pretty pretty small number. It's a lot less than the thirty by thirty um that uh Aaron referenced earlier. And uh the, the, there's a lot of scope for having more forests um left to uh to grow into this this truly old stage with all the complexity and carbon storage that comes with it. Mm. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking with Mac Hunter, who is one of the donors um, of, for the Forever Wild Conservation Easement in Aurora. Sophie Earhart is with the Northeast Wilderness Trust and coordinator of the Wildlands Partnership Program. And Aaron Doherty is executive director of Frenchman's Bay Conservancy. Um, a conservancy. Aaron, uh, you were going to make a point? Yeah, I, I was just thinking about an analogy. You know, when people um, first got into forestry on a large scale in Maine, they were incredibly successful. It was a huge industry for a long time, still is a huge industry, and, and hopefully will be far into the future. 
Um, but the consequence of that early on was that we we lost um, all of that old growth forest. So I think when people experience forests today, they're still experiencing what is a you know relatively mature forest, but it's not that really old forest that Mac was talking about. And the analogy that comes to mind for me is like, you know, if you go if you grow a garden and you go outside and you look at your garden in June, you're like, oh, there's a lot of things growing. It's really pretty. And you know, look at all these carrots coming up and the and the green beans and the spinach and so forth. But if you go out to that same garden in August, it's like, oh my God, everything is just it, it, if you've weeded it. If you if you're not like me and you don't let everything. <laughs> But it's, it's a very, it can be very impressive to see how that change happens. And so the forest changes, obviously, on a very different scale, but it just feels very different. It feels different underfoot. Um, it, it smells different. The sounds are different. The, the species of birds that, that um, inhabit that landscape are often different. And so um, there's a lot of changes, but it takes a long time. And so we need to be patient. We need to allow the, the landscape to recover over time. Is there, is there some kind of a... a measurement that's going on is there any baseline data about this this particular set of of uh, properties and and how will you kind of um, monitor that uh, you can certainly see um, as mac and, and sophie have said the trees grow larger so you go out and measure the tree and you see a larger tree are there other things that you can actually point to that will will change over time anybody this is not going to be a research area per, per se, at least that's not the intent. I mean, it, it, that I suppose that might happen, but it's certainly not uh, not been discussed. But to the extent that this is in, enrolled in a, uh, a forest carbon project, <clears throat> there will be um, measurements of the forest carbon happening or, or over over time. And um the uh, the landowners associated with, with it, um, my wife and myself, and a much more significant landowner, a woman from from Florida who uh, owns uh, about three quarters of the property, um, will be uh, will be paid for the carbon sequestration that uh, that happens uh, over the uh, over the coming decades. You know, you, you've you've referenced. Um, me twice as a conservation donor and there's some truth to that but but as, uh, we're not quite as generous or philanthropic as you might think in this in two senses one um because of all of aaron's excellent fundraising and to some extent uh, the uh sophie and the uh, northeast wilderness trust were involved as well uh, we were paid uh, for the the conservation easement that um, was placed on the, on this on this property. So so uh, significantly more than half of the value of the property we were compensated for uh, when we agreed to uh, transfer a conservation easement on this on this land. And then on top of that, we will be getting income from uh, from the sale of carbon credits going going forward so um it's as it, yeah there's some generosity involved but uh, particularly of my time <laughs> but but it's not um all of uh it's not just us giving away vast sums of money <laughs> by right. any means. And, and i think that's the thing that that is 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 in some ways changing is that we are recognizing that there is value to, pl to preserving and protecting conserving land and therefore 
um, the the initial investor, um, human investor, um, could receive some compensation for that. Um, and that has always been true with conservation easements to some extent, that there is an economic benefit, even though it may be small, um, because you're not being taxed on the potential for development, but in fact, um, for no development, there's a, there's a shift there as well. Um, well, I will have to I will have to interrupt here to say that I think Mac is um, underestimating his <laughs> generosity, and, and here's why: because it is true um, that the conservation buyers have bought the property, um, and that they have received compensation for placing a, a forever wild easement on the property and letting Frenchman Bay Conservancy and Northeast Wilderness Trust hold that. However, when you place a forever wild easement on a property, you've basically taken all of the economic value of the property away. And so, um, you know, if you can't, you know, have it, you know, if, if he ever wanted to sell that property, um, the timber inventory, you know, w wouldn't be useful because he can't. It can't be harvested by a future owner. Um, it can't be converted to development, which was the, one of the first impetuses for protecting it, right? For habitat. So basically, um, they haven't even been compensated for the, the full value of what they've put into purchasing the property. And meanwhile, they've protected so many species and allowed, you know, public access. Um, to this property and and allowed the um, that beautiful view, you know, from the from that high high uh, part of the the road there over the whole Walesback property, it, you know, has been preserved for everyone who goes by. And so I think, um, yeah, there's a there's been compensation, but I think what the public has gotten back has been a, a value uh, much greater than what the owners received. So. So I do you remember a a a sentence in a appraisal. These lands have to be uh, formally or uh, rigorously appraised in terms of their market value as part of these conservation easement processes. And and there was a line in there basically saying, well, when the easement is transferred this forever wild easement basically all that the owner's retaining is uh the feeling of of ownership the pride the pride of ownership and the right to pay property taxes <laughs> so um this this land does um, um stay on the tax rolls then um and there are property taxes paid to the communities that that uh, do that it's not the same as if it were developable land um in terms of the value that's that's appraised but um the towns continue to receive property taxes from from this land is that right that's yeah. right yes yeah what else do we need to know about what's contained in the conservation easement um what would what would might be interesting to to other landowners for instance about this process and 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 What's the nature of these conservation easements? Uh, Sophie, can you get us started on that? Or Aaron? Go ahead, Sophie. Yeah, so in a, um, I'm not speaking just about the Walesback easement. I'll let Aaron uh, chime in on that or Mac. But in general, a forever wild uh, conservation easement um, really is a commitment to allow uh, nature to 
direct the ebb and flow of life. And so it restricts um, some pretty major human uses of the property, basically any commercial uh, use of the property, any extractive, you know, uh, uh, the landowner uh, conveys the right um, of mining, of timber, of farming, of development, all of these rights um, are held by the easement holder and are prohibited by the easement. So it really creates a um, a protected area. There are uh, restrictions, just like the federal uh, wilderness uh, criteria. Uh, there's no road building or uh, motorized vehicles on the property, but the public is welcome to explore on foot, on snowshoe, go birding, you know, get out on the, the water. Those things are all allowed so a more gentle recreation um, is welcomed and and again to go back to the concept of a conservation easement there's a this is an active dialogue between the person who owns the land and and gives the conservation easement and the holder in in this case of, of the easement and aaron you can talk a little bit about this process so if people are listening and they're interested in protecting their land or conserving their land it's not a one-size-fits-all there's there's some some variability to what that entails aaron yeah that's definitely true ron so at frenchman bay conservancy we get calls from individuals who want to protect their land and every conservation easement that we craft is really unique and it, it does take time to to put that into it we start with what do the landowners want to do with the land? What's their long-term interest? Do they have children or, or other heirs that they want to think about in terms of uses of that property? And what do they want to protect? What are the rights that they are comfortable giving to Frenchman Bay Conservancy for these conservation easements, which exist in perpetuity? They're forever uh, easements. In some cases, they're forever wild, like what we're talking about today. In other cases, they allow the landowner to do a variety of different things from having a, a lot where they can build a house in the future or a, a, one of their kids can build a house in the future, or um, maybe they harvest the timber on the property. Um, that's just, you know, uh, skimming the surface. There are a lot of different things to go into, but I think it's also important to point out that sometimes we approach this relationship to develop a conservation easement where a landowner comes to us and says, you know, I had this amazing experience with this property. This land is so important to me. I really want to be able to protect it in the future. And, and so we're able to do that. Northeast Wilderness Trust and other organizations are, are able to do that. Other times, Frenchman Bay Conservancy will seek out a landowner um, either because the property is on the market um, or, or maybe it's just a, it's a particularly valuable piece of property um, from a conservation standpoint. And so we'll, we'll approach them and, and ask, you know, what are your interests in the, in the long term for this property? Uh, but both times, it's really, it starts with a conversation about what does the landowner want to do with the land? Um, and then from there, lead into how do we conserve it in the long term? Um, as you think back about, um, and as, as Mac Hunter has, has um, said, this is a, a long story. Um, what have you learned in this process um, that, uh, that you know, you, you want to share with, with uh, other landowners, other uh, uh, folks involved in land conservation, um, and with our listeners? What, what have you learned about the, the process? Aaron, can we start with you? What, what have you learned about this, 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 this game? <laughs> well, if I didn't know it already, it takes a long time to conserve a really important piece of property <laughs> and a lot of people. Um, no, I mean, this 
I, I sort of say that in jest, but this was a humbling experience. It was really remarkable to work with um, so many different partners. Northeast Wilderness Trust, of course, was great. Uh, the Nature Conservancy was also a financial partner. Uh, Maine Coast Heritage Trust, I mentioned, had uh, uh, joined with Frenchman Bay Conservancy to secure that initial award. Um, so I think it helped us also grow as an organization, and we've set our sights higher as a result of this, and we're now looking to conserve 10,000 acres over the next three years as a result. So, you know, we're planning on on continuing to grow and continuing to reach further and really taking to heart this notion of trying to protect as much as we can in, in our part of the world for people and nature forever. Mm. Sophie, in terms of, of what you've learned and, and maybe speak specifically to the Wildlands Partnership Program uh, that you coordinate, um, what will you take forward or, or what will you add to as you think about future work? Well, uh, let's see. Our um, Moving forward, we are entering a phase two of the Wildlands Partnership Program. And as part of that, it's it's been really uh, informative to me and to our organization to work in this way with um, landowners and another land trust um, at the same time and to be as a co-holder of the easement um, to just learn how Frenchman Bay Conservancy goes about crafting those um, forever wild easements and also learn uh, from Mac and Aram, who are both uh, ecologists, a forest ecologist and a wetlands ecologist. Um, it's just been tremendous to have um, them involved with the project and holding those same the same values. Um, so it's been, yeah, I, I guess in that way informative to us. We're we're very excited because this this project um, was a large acquisition of new acres, and through the Wildlands Partnership, we do um, we've worked on a, a range of property sizes. But it was fun for us to see. Um, you know, how ambitious some local partners can be on the ground. You know, we were hoping to have land trusts that were interested in thousand acre properties or so. And this was uh, one of the largest uh, single blocks that came to the program. And it's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I want to I just add really briefly, if any one of the partners were not involved in this project, I don't think it would have happened. You know, Mac was the glue that that brought other um, conservation partners to the table and help them stick. And, um, you know, Sophie and Northeast Wilderness Trust provided funding and a, an attractive concept also for, for conservation buyers. And so, I mean, this was, I, we said partnership so many times, but I think it's really true that each one of the partners in this project was essential. Mm. Mac, as an ecologist, um, um, not necessarily as a, as a, property owner and a donor, um, what did you learn about the process? Um, you're taking the long view um, as, a, as a professor at the university, um, as a researcher. Um, what did you learn about the conservation of land in this process? Well, just how, uh, how many partners it takes to, to pull something off uh, like this and, um, and the um, and the opportunities that it represents, uh, not only for for us but also other uh, potential conservation buyers, and um, in the process of this, uh, we've become very close friends with the the, the person from Florida who joined us uh, with this, uh, other neighbors who uh, own significant lands in the in the area have have become 
um, friends of ours through the through the process. We we quite literally were, were driving down a, a, a logging road in the middle of nowhere, ran into a couple from Massachusetts who were kind of wandering around in the woods looking for for land to buy. Um, and we we started talking to them, and uh, within a year, I found a, a piece of land for them to buy. And uh, last week, Aaron met with them, and we we're in, in the process of getting that land formally conserved. So it's it's um, it's been great, a lot of fun, very diverse in terms of our interactions with other people who are also interested in in conservation and uh, actively trying to to get out and do something themselves mm. it's it's it strikes me as is, is that part of the story um, um is that uh people kind of talking to one another about that what they want for the future of a place <laughs> and it may be a place that they own or a place they inhabit or a place that they visit but it's something about the con- conversation about the future of a a place, and it seems like um, that um, we're in a significant time, um, as Sophie alluded to, in terms of kind of a, a balancing act of of are we gonna are we gonna make it, um, <laughs> and having those con- conversations about the future of a place um, really significant. What would you add to to that notion of uh, conservation of a place or future of a place, Aaron? Yes. You're, well, you're spot on. I mean, I think it comes down to what are we going to have left in 25 years and 50 years and 100 years? What is this landscape going to look like? What are our children and grandchildren going to have for experiences? And how do those compare to what we had or what our grandparents had before us? And, and you know, we the land is essential. And that's a theme that I think has run through today's program. So we want to make sure that we can preserve those opportunities and also conserve those habitats. I also would like to add. Um, that I think these conversations about what do we want for the future are so important to be had, you know, neighbor to neighbor, as Mac Mm -hmm. is talking about, but also organization to organization. And it's so important that we have uh, in in our landscape, in our conserved lands, both wildlands and woodlands that are sustainably harvested. And um, it's important for conservation organizations to be having these conversations and to be working together. Like Aaron said, you know, he can work with the Nature Conservancy, with the Forest Society of Maine, and also with the Northeast Wilderness Trust. And um, we don't need to argue about, well, this should be wildlands, this should be woodlands. We need both, you know, and we need to work together and make sure that um, we're sort of conserving land in, in so many different ways ways and for di- with different priorities um, and working together through those conversations. Is it, is it, it do you feel as though uh, nature is resilient if we will let it be? Is that a, is yes. that a concept that, that makes sense? <laughs> yes. uh, say yes, a little because, bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because nature um, is when wild nature is messy and it's complex and it's, um, got so much variety that I think that is where resilience comes from. And we need, while we're um, managing some properties, you know, for, for certain species or certain human objectives, we also need some, some pockets of this, this rich uh, wild diversity that is very resilient. Um, 
and, and, and Mac should probably chime in as the ecologist here, but, but that diversity gives us some stability. Mac, a, a brief, brief word on resilience and, and land protection. Yes, the um, ultimately having land that is um, relatively free of human activity is 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 the key. Uh, some portion, uh, some non-trivial portion of it, I personally believe, should be set set aside for uh, nature to develop unfettered, on unguided by by human hands. I, I referenced that about 5% of the state of Maine has so, been so designated. Compare that to the the area of land that has been conserved in the big sense of that that word, including working forests, is a bit over, over 20%. Um, and so Maine's done a pretty good job. Uh, 20% for a state that's mostly privately owned is 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 pretty darn pretty darn good. But um, Five percent uh, out of the whole seems low to me, and that's why I've become particularly focused on trying to move the 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 bar in the in the forever wild column. Not, not to suggest that uh, a big portion of the land should be forever wild, fifty percent or something like like that would be would be a, a stretch. But uh, we can do a lot better than five percent, and Great. that's where I'm going to be pushing. Great. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests um, this afternoon, Aaron Doherty, Executive Director, Frenchman Spake Conservancy, uh, Mac Hunter, uh, Wildlife Professor at the University of Maine, uh, Emeritus, and, and a donor for a forever wild conservation easement in the Walesback area, and Sophie Earhart, Coordinator of the Wildlands Partnership Program of the Northeast Wilderness Trust. Uh, thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown and Joel Mann for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for the Talk of the Towns program. And this is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>